Our second lesson comes from the Gospel of Luke, the 16th chapter. It's printed in your liturgy for you. Then Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, what will I do? Now that my master is taking the position away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? He answered, a hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 50. Then he said, then he asked another, how much do you owe? He replied, hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and make it 80. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth so that when it's gone, they may welcome you into eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in very little is faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? If you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and, I like the old word for it, mammon. <laughs> you cannot serve God and wealth. God and mammon. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's one of those parables you read it and you say, this is the word of the Lord. You say, ooh, man. Okay, thanks be to God. <laughs> it's an enigmatic parable. It's tortured commentators for years. So many different takes on it. I want to do my best with it this morning. God, open our ears that we would hear the gospel, our eyes that we would see Jesus. May God's spirit, may your spirit come, empower us, expand our imaginations. Enable us to live more faithfully as Jesus' followers in this world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, we've been watching stranger things in our home. Don't judge me, please. Um, it is such an interesting show. One of the... <laughs> One of the funniest things to me in the in the show, though, that I've noticed over over a couple of seasons here is uh, is every time somebody gets into a car, they floor it right away. And I'm thinking, first of all, there's a Pinto in the show that's in like every episode, and I can't believe it's still running, especially after uh, when on a rider character floors it every time. Um, but whatever the car, whatever the circumstances, they get in it and woof, away they go, pedal to the metal. And I'm thinking to myself, in the 80s, did, did we all do that? <laughs> this is such an 80s show, right? And I'm thinking to myself, oh, when I was in high school, yeah, like a lot of people 
<laughs> like that. Um, but, you know, they use it in the show as a very clever device. It sort of gives you this feeling of urgency all the time. Urgent. Everything's urgent. Everything's pressing. Everything's serious. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. You've got to do it quickly. Lives are at stake. No spoilers. I'm not going to tell you why lives are at stake. But it's serious and it's frantic. And they symbolize this, I think, the way they shoot the angles of the cars taken off, the slamming of the doors, the flooring of the accelerator. I think they use that as a technique to sort of like make sure you remember everything's urgent all the time. Kind of reminds me of last week when we meet a woman who is frantically searching for a lost coin. We meet a shepherd who's frantically searching for a lost sheep. We meet a father who's frantically wishing that his son would come home and then urgently, with great energy, brings shame to himself and runs and meets the prodigal son, quote-unquote, on the way before he can even get home. That energy is so prevalent in Jesus' parables because... um, Jesus tells parables often in order to bring the point across that there's serious things happening and they should be taken seriously. This parable is one of those parables. Moreover, this parable is what they call a what time it is parable. In other words, do you know what time it is? The implication is, maybe you don't know what time it is. Jesus often uses these what time it is parables to make the point that the time is drawing near for the kingdom of God to be ushered in. And key to that is the time is drawing near for Jesus to suffer death on the cross in Jerusalem. These parables, you know, these what time is it parables, or what time it is parables, um, put the hearer in the position of being asked this question, do you know what time it is, answered by, I'm not sure that you do. Because if you did, you would be acting differently. You would leap into your car and hit the gas, pedal to the metal, to borrow from my little example earlier. This parable is, what time is it parable, or do you know what time it is? It's also an analogy parable as well, meaning that the story offers an analogy of what life should be like for Jesus' followers. It's not an allegorical parable. The characters in the parable, they don't stand for God and Jesus, etc. It's an analogy parable. So given all that, what is Jesus' meaning for the disciples? What, what, What is he wanting them to take from this parable? Well, I think that in spite of all kinds of interesting ideas that have been posed over the years, I think it's actually pretty simple. What Jesus is saying to them is, if you knew what time it was, you would be acting like something really big was about to happen that was going to alter human history. That's what happens to the steward in the parable, right? 
Human history happens to be his own history, but he recognizes rightly that something's going to happen. And if he wants to come out on the other end of it in a place of well-being for himself, then he must do things, and he must do things quickly in light of that future. Now, what he does is not ethical, but remember, this is not an analogy parable. The analogy in it for Jesus' followers, for us, is not in what he does, but the fact that he knows what time it is. And he knows he's supposed to act in light of what he knows about the future. The parable also is a how much more than should you, than you should be like this parable. Jesus says, gee whiz, guys, if, if the guy in this story can realize things about his future and act, how much more should you be able to? In other words, Jesus is saying to them, I am with you all the time. I'm talking about the coming of the kingdom. I'm talking about going to Jerusalem to be on the cross. Your response should be, wow, history is about to change. Sign me up. Tell me how radical I should be living. And Jesus is saying, you're not acting like you know about the future. This fictitious story that Jesus makes up, this parable that he, that he spins out, is a story about someone who does know about the future and who does quickly act accordingly. So the parable, it's an analogy parable. It's a, well, then how much more should you be able to figure this out parable? It's also a parable about money and people. Jesus crafted a story that is starring money and people. They're the co-stars of the story, if you will, in order to get his hearers to think about their relationship with money and people. The steward is laser beam focused on using money in a way that helps him work with people to secure the future that he desires. In contrast, Jesus is saying that his followers are not always so laser beam focused. Not always so laser beam focused as the steward. In fact, we children of the light are often split focused, aren't we? We get distracted by the love of money that this world urges. The steward here had no doubt that the future must change his present relationship with money and people. Jesus says that his followers should have no doubt about how the future should change their present relationship with money and people. As children of the light, they're to look at money and people in a radically different way than the world does. In a way that, uh, that resembles one of the prayers of the people this morning. Kara, do you have that prayer with you still printed out? This prayer, uh, forget which one it was now. It's a prayer that talked about justice and the way that that we should live according to the kingdom now. Well, I'm going to make this a longer sermon than it needs to be if I take the time to find that but 
um, Lee wrote a really great prayer, and then we sang about the same sort of thing this morning. And so what it is that Jesus is saying to his disciples is, you're children of the light. I've been teaching you about money and people. The kingdom is coming. And he's basically saying, live urgently. Live as if it really matters what you do with your money and what you do with people. In the sequel to Luke's gospel, the Acts of the Apostles, Luke shows us what this ought to look like. People regard themselves in Acts, they're presented as regarding themselves as not belonging to the world of mammon or the world of wealth, but as belonging to each other with money serving the purpose of feeding the poor and, in general, creating a more equitable community. Here's an example of of what it looks like from Acts 4. Now, the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all and there was not a needy person among them for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold they laid it at the apostles feet and it was distributed to each as any had need there was a Levite from Cyprus Joseph to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas which means son of encouragement he sold a field that belonged to him then brought the money and laid it at the apostles feet I'm indebted to our friend Aaron Keeker in an article that he wrote for this idea that in the book of Acts you see people recognizing that in a sense they're each other's possessions. People belong to each other. Money is just there to be a blessing for other people. This is how the early church, through Christ's empowering presence in their midst, which came through their steady prayer and worship together. This is how the early church sorted out what it meant to act like this steward, to act as if the future was already happening, to sense the urgency of of living in a way that is radically, in radical contrast to the way the spirit of our age talks about money and people and that sort of thing. That's what they did. That's what it looked like for them to do it. What does it look like for you and I to do it? What does it look like for you and I? And, you know, you read Acts sometimes, and you look at these uh, patterns of behavior, and you think, that was then. That's amazing. I think I'll write a check to the church and call it a day. (laughs) But it's, if you read the book of Acts carefully, None of this happens automatically in the book of Acts. The, the, if you could think of the book of Acts, if you will, as the response to a faithful community, their response to Jesus' parable about the steward, if you can think about the book of Acts in that way, you'll recognize that the only reason that it happens the way that it does successfully over and over again in the book of Acts is because they remain in conversation with God and conversation with each other. They remind each other that they're supposed to look at money and people in a way that the world does not look at money and people and that they need God to constantly 
re-enliven them, expand, re-expand their imaginations so that they believe that that way of life is true. So, Jesus asks us this morning the same thing that he asks his followers. Do you recognize that the kingdom is already here? And if so, will you ask God's spirit to enable you to live if that were true? And if you live like it's true, you're going to live quite differently than uh, the spirit of this age would have you to live. Now, I want to close by calling out one other somewhat puzzling, at least at first glance, analogical thing from this story. And it's that the spirit, the um, the steward, in the or the, the the worker, whatever they call him in this translation, the manager in this story, is rewarded for looking out after himself. Now, wait a minute, that analogy is not working for me on first glance. Aren't we called to deny ourselves? Aren't we called to uh, take up our cross and follow Jesus? But this manager is rewarded for looking out for himself. Well, I think that our problem is, is that we don't think about it with enough imagination. You know, what Jesus is saying here by way of analogy is that the universe is made in such a way that if you live radically... If you live with a generous spirit regarding your possessions and understanding that people belong to each other and that you don't belong to money or the spirit of mammon, if you will, if you live in that way, it actually is to your own advantage. And there's nothing wrong with that. Because the universe is made in such a way that when people live generously and when people um, live this cruciform life that we talk about all the time, it's actually not only good for the people around them, but it's good for them. And so even that in the story has resonance for us when we think about it from the right perspective. Jesus is saying, look, this steward knew about the future, and he did something that was going to secure him a place in it. Good for him. How about you? Now, I'm not going to contradict anything that Anna said about God doing all the work for us, but I am going to remind all of us that it's a dance that we're dancing with the Spirit and that we must rely on the Spirit to enable us to live in that way that is to not only to the advantage of our neighbors, but to the advantage of ourselves. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen.